You are listening to Tough Island, Maine on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 on your FM dial, serving mid-coast, down-east, and central Maine, and on the internet at WERU.org. Warning, these true stories may not be appropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Episode 8 My name is Crashberry, and for two years, when I was a much younger man, I lived on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island. A couple of years living in a fish shack didn't make me an expert on Matinicus, But it was a long enough immersion to recognize the distinctive nature of the island, to see beyond the myth and the hype, to study a unique society with a wannabe writer's brain, filtered through a thick lens of drugs, (laughs) youth, and hard work. My time on Matinicus taught me an important lesson. Be careful on Tough Island. To listen to previous episodes of Tough Island, visit Crashberry.com. You can also listen via the WERU archives at WERU.org. The end of the last episode was a cliffhanger. Actually, more of a boat hanger with Captain Donald hanging off the stern of the dotted eye, with a piece of rope wrapped around his leg and the other end tied to a pair of heavy lobster traps headed for the ocean bottom of the outer banks of Penobscot Bay. Luckily for Captain Donald, his powerful tree-thick arms were wrapped around the steel bar that spanned his boat's transom, momentarily stalling his almost certain death by drowning. God damn it! Luckily for Captain Donald, I was there, in a flash, almost, with my sharp knife raised up. Hold on, boss, I'm coming! Blade poised to slash the line to cut the rope and free Donald from the traps trying to murder him. Ah! Donald's eyes were open wide in terror, and he yelled at me, Don't you dare cut those friggin' traps! That's a hundred dollars a pair! As soon as I'd seen him headed overboard, I ran forward and put the engine in neutral. The traps acted like brakes, almost, and our forward momentum was slowing. So instead of cutting the line, I heaved and hoed on the rope heave ho, heave ho, to relieve the tension of the sinking traps. And Captain Donald snaked his leg free and clambered aboard. We're going to set these last two traps on. He said, gasping and pointing. Uh, then we'll, then we're going home. Captain Donald staggered to the helm, put the boat in gear, and then collapsed. 
sprawled on the engine box. He was barely conscious, wheezing in shock. I took the wheel and came about and headed back towards Matinicus. Via the radio, I hailed his brother. Turned pretty bad. Over, I said. He got tangled up in pot warp and went overboard practically. Over. Why, Jesus? Is he gonna live? Uh, yeah, I think so. Over. Captain Donald was flown to the mainland. A waiting ambulance rushed him to Penn Bay Medical Center. Mary Margaret said when she called me that night. But you know Donald. He's unstoppable. He wasn't going to let a pair of traps rip his leg off or drown him. Captain Donald's wife sounded even more gray and annoying than usual. They gave him something to dull the pain and, and then forced the bone right back into the socket. Wow. He's the toughest man alive. Uh, that's pretty amazing. We'll be back tomorrow. The doctors say he won't be working for at least a month. But you know Donald. He can't sit around the house for that long. Sure enough, a single week after the accident, while I was working in the shop painting buoys and splicing rope, I felt the staircase shudder. The sign of a visitor. I looked out the side window and saw Captain Donald slowly climbing the stairs, taking them one at a time, struggling, grimacing with each step, and gripping the railing tight. The doctors had dramatically underestimated his urgent need to escape from Mary Margaret. Uh, hello there, he said brightly. A big smile on his face, like he was glad to see me. You ready to get back out to hall? Later this week, I was thinking, maybe Friday, if the weather's all right. Geez, uh, I was hoping to leave on Friday. Leave? Leave? Where are you going? Uh, down to Portland. I'm going to see Alice for her school vacation. Don't you remember? Oh, that, that was before I got hurt. Well, yeah, well, now we're a week and a half behind. We need to haul the gear. On several occasions, we discussed this planned trip to visit my girlfriend in the big city of Portland in southern Maine, a couple hours south of Rockland. My relationship with Alice was blossoming, I guess, mostly via phone calls and letters, in an occasional weekend get-together in a Rockland motel. Now I was headed to her home turf to meet her family. You can't take vacation. Captain Donald shook his head. Not until I go down to Florida. 
next month. I need to go next week. We need to haul our gear and make up for lost time. You can't go to Portland. I gotta go. I promised her. He pointed at me. Tell her to come out to this island paradise. She can stay at her grandmother's house. He grinned. That house isn't even winterized. Besides, I gotta go down there. Well, she can stay with you, Captain Donald said, like it was the most generous offer in the world. That way, when we get in from Hall, she can get your supper all ready for you, and, uh, I, I don't think so. Alice didn't want to spend her vacation on Matinicus, hauling water from the well and staying in my cold and drafty shack. Besides, I needed to take a break and get off the island. Uh, listen, Donald, we agreed that I'd be able Things to... Things change, <laughs> he snorted. Anyways, Mary Margaret sent me down here to invite you up for supper, and she's got your paycheck. Too bad you're not going to be able to go to Portland, Mary Margaret said, holding my pay envelope. But Donald says he's ready to get back to hauling, and he needs you, so you're going to have to stay... Listen, I interrupted and snatched the envelope from her fingers. Maybe I could stay here until Sunday after we haul through all the gear. You ain't going nowhere. If you want to keep your job, you'd fire me? Rationally, I knew he could fire me. But he wouldn't because he needed me. I don't need you. Easy to find someone around here who wants to make some money. Let me put it to you this way. He pointed at me and stuck his finger in my face. I'm done with you. You're fired. <laughs> what? You better have everything out of the shop by tomorrow noon. What? You heard me. Y you can't fire me. I, I can't. Says who? Of course I can. I'm the boss. You can't fire me because I quit. We stood there, he and I, squared off. You can't quit. I already fired you. He was an old man, recovering from a painful injury. I was young and super strong and angry. From the look in his eyes, I could see he wanted to slug me. <clears throat> and I wanted to hit him back. Hard. Oh, oh, Donald, Mary Margaret said. That's a very good decision. I know, he said. So get your friggin' hippie stuff out of my shop by tomorrow noon, or I'll toss it in the harbor like the garbage it is. Uh, yeah, whatever, I said. <laughs> Mary Margaret let out a squeal <gasps> and grabbed Captain Donald by the arm. Well, f*** you, hippie. Donald! The next morning, I emptied my room and stowed all my gear at Benny and Paul's, then flew off the island and hitchhiked to southern Maine to hook up with Alice. I knew I'd have to return to Matinicus because I had no place else to go, but for the moment, I was on vacation. The day after I arrived at Alice's house, I called Captain Edwin Mitchell. Another Matinicus lobsterman who is said to be looking for a new stern man. I didn't know Edwin other than to wave when we saw him on the road. But he was Paul's uncle and Paul had a phone number for him down south where he was having a winter vacation. Please leave a message 
Hey there, Edwin. Uh, word on the island is that you're looking for a new Sternman. Just wanted to let you know that I'm available. Captain Edwin was well known as a lone wolf. I worked for Captain Donald last year, but now I'm looking for a new position. Who stayed out of island politics. I can be reached at 207-597. And didn't belong to any of the lobster mafia families. Thanks, and I look forward to hearing from you. A couple of days later, Captain Edwin called back and after a brief conversation, decided to give me a chance. I was to meet him back on Matinicus in mid-March. Luckily, I had just enough cash to survive then because Alice was generous enough to feed me and put me up and put up with me. One day you're a stern man on a remote main island. A week later, you're an unpaid political operative for an insurgent presidential campaign. And that's, and that's why we have to ban political action committees so people and corporations are put on the same level. At least that's the way it worked for me. And, and that's why we have to fight to ensure that the minimum wage, the presidential wage, and the congressional wage show we're all in it together. After my eye-opening experience fighting the war on drugs and the war on Haitian refugees while serving in the United States Coast Guard, and seeing firsthand the dangers of rampant capitalistic imperialism, I was ready to complete my radicalization. All together, and the closer, the better. That's where solidarity comes from. But let's not get fooled by the false populism that comes to us out of the very concentration of wealth and power that we're sworn to oppose. It was time to overthrow the government, burn down the establishment, and start anew. And with these tools of democracy, we're gonna move to higher ground and restore the promise of democracy. And then truly, we'll be able to fight trade treaties that reduce wages and in weaken environmental standards. And we can fight to assure that every child has a decent education and every family a decent house and every single American the health care they deserve. And we can fight to see that we have an environment that isn't poisoned but depends on clean, renewable energy that the people of this country make for themselves. During the run-up to the 1992 presidential elections, Governor Jerry Brown of California was the only candidate even remotely standing near a torch. Does the question, uh, Governor Brown, of Mr. Clinton's recent problems lead you to believe that he has an electability problem? Yeah, I think he's got a big electability problem. Well, what do you think it is? I want to tell you what it is. There's 270 miles of Arkansas rivers that are polluted with fecal coliform bacteria and are unsafe for humans or fish. So it's not only corruption, it's an environmental disaster, and it's the kind of conflict of interest that is incompatible in the kind of public servant we expect It doesn't sound like you could run States. as his vice president. No, it doesn't. Mr. Clinton, uh, do you want to take a swing at all that stuff? I feel sorry for Jerry Brown. I served with him as governor in the late 70s. He asked me to support him for president once. Did you? Of course not. So while staying at Alice's in suburban southern Maine, 
I volunteered for the Jerry Brown for President campaign, where having long hair and a beard full of herring bones was almost considered an asset. It's rally time. It is rally time for the people, for the environment, for jobs, for a community, a community that cares and that works for all of us. Initially, I was assigned grunt work at the Portland office and then sent out onto the streets to leaflet and poster. After a week, I was promoted and given the task of speaking on behalf of Jerry at a handful of Democratic Party caucuses in the tiniest Maine towns. Maine has caucuses, not primaries. I'm hoping you'll support Jerry Brown for president. We ultimately won, in Maine, by a hair. But people have voted, and they voted for the future. They voted for a vision of honesty and grassroots participation Real, genuine change. That's what we stand for. That's what we're going to keep fighting for. So, it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to congregate. It's a time to... I'm trying to think of another word that'll... I was going to say time to propagate, but I knew that was the wrong word. But it came to my mind as I was going through that list which energized the Jerry Brown for President campaign hippies, and then the battle moved on next to Massachusetts for their primary election. I volunteered to promote and poster for Jerry in western Massachusetts, which would give me an excuse to visit my parents and then hang out with my old pal Frankie, <laughs> who was living on his uncle's cabin cruiser in a Boston marina. But first, I was going to spend a couple of days with friends in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My old Coast Guard stomping grounds to catch up and to party. The night before I was supposed to leave Portsmouth to go stay with my parents, I was half drunk in a crowded and noisy waterfront bar. It was there I ran into a trio of Coast Guard officers who broke the news that Frankie was dead. That he died in a car crash. My response, Frankie's not dead. I talked to him last week. Frankie had called a couple of nights before Captain Donald fired me. Uh, hello? Hey, Crash, how you doing? Hey, Frankie, uh, did you know what time it is? Yeah, it's about 3.30 in the morning. Got time to talk? So Frankie wasn't dead because Frankie was full of life. Man, I'm going to U2 concert in Worcester next week. <laughs> yeah, man, it's going to be a blast. Always laughing and ready with a joke. <laughs> The most alive dude I knew. Too bad you're stuck out on that remote main island. Otherwise, I say, come along, dude. From the look on the Coast Guard officers' faces, though, I could tell they were serious. Because the guy driving Frankie back from the U2 concert in Worcester fell asleep at the wheel, and their car crashed into the stern of a broken-down 
18-wheeler on the side of the Massachusetts Turnpike, and Frankie, in the passenger seat, was instantly killed. I staggered outside the bar, weeping, wailing. And these former shipmates, officers to my lowly enlisted status, guys who I used to salute and call sir, they hugged me to comfort me. But to no avail. The next couple of days were a drunken blur. A bunch of us, Coasties and Portsmouth friends, met up in Boston and stayed at a pal's house for the wake and funeral. Everyone wandering around like crying, drunk zombies. Denial is often part of grieving, but we all felt the death of Frankie was literally unbelievable. A vibrant, kind fellow like him wasn't supposed to die young on the side of the road in the middle of the night. We were astounded by the number of people waiting to get into the wake. Hundreds and hundreds stretching for a block away from the funeral home. We took a couple more slugs off the flask before joining the line of beautiful and handsome faces, tear-stained with grief. Inside Frankie's parents were greeting the mourners. I took a deep breath and went to hug his mom. I hadn't seen her in a couple of years, and for a second, she didn't recognize me because of my long hair and full beard. It's Crash, I said. Remember me? Through her tears, hugging me tight, she said they'd been trying to find me to let me know that Frankie, to let me, <laughs> to let me know Frankie was gone. I couldn't control myself. I couldn't stop crying. She cooed and hugged me. His mom was comforting me. She was being a mom during her time of utter sorrow. I loved him so much, I said. And he got such a kick out of you. Oh, he did. I knew he loved you too, she said, trying to smile. He had a great time in Ireland with you. She grinned, 
You guys had lots and lots of adventures together, didn't you? Unable to speak, I nodded. I'm so glad, she said, hugging me again. I stayed at my parents' house in Springfield, in the Indian Orchard neighborhood. Still in shock, I missed the solitude and quiet of the island and felt lost in the paved world of cities and politics. I half-heartedly did some promotion for Jerry Brown. made a big speech to a progressive group in Amherst. I'm hoping you'll support Jerry Brown for president. And then I visited my alma mater, Cathedral High School, to plead Jerry Brown for president's case in front of Mrs. Francis Jensen's political science classes. So in closing, I'm hoping you'll support Jerry Brown for president, either by voting, if you're old enough, or perhaps explain to your parents why Jerry Brown is what America needs. I mourned Frankie's death while stapling campaign flyers to a million lamp posts and bulletin boards. I mourned his passing while hanging out in my parents' basement. And I mourned his death when I wandered late night on the nearby railroad tracks. Just like I did as a teenage wannabe punk rocker, drinking wine from a jug. and smoking ganja. <coughs> Getting higher and higher until I was incoherent and numb. That's me. Tough Island, Maine is based on the book Tough Island. Visit CrashBerry.com for other episodes of Tough Island, Maine for more information about my books, my investigative journalism, or my podcast, Devils in Dirtbags.
Season 1 is a true crime investigation of evil priests and their protectors. And remember, be careful on Tough Island.